0: bulletproof radio a state of high performance
1: you are going to love today's episode because we go deep so to speak on something called hyperbaric oxygen therapy and this is something that has such a broad applicability to almost anything that you might want to do like be more resilient Uh, perform better, recover faster, or recover from almost any disease you can think of, whether it's a short-term or long-term, there's a potential for this stuff to help. I'm interviewing one of the world's top medical professionals who's spent his career working on this and written some books about it. So there's a lot of stuff you can do to help yourself, help the people around you. You'll just find nuggets sprinkled throughout. Enjoy the show and listen through all the way to the end to get the good stuff. For 25 years I've had a strong passion for understanding the science behind why we age and what we can do about it. One of the most groundbreaking discoveries in the last two decades is senolytics. Senolytics are plant-derived or pharmaceutical ingredients that can help your body drop old, worn-out cells. Scientists call them senescent cells, and in my books, I call them zombie cells. As you age, those senescent cells build up in your body. They live for a long time, and they eat up your energy. There is a hack for this. It's called Qualia Synolytic. Your podcast sponsor, Neurohacker Collective, created Qualia Synolytic. It eliminates those zombie cells and has a clinical study that supports its effectiveness. I really felt a difference in how my body moved after just a couple months on Qualia Synolytic. It's upped my energy level even more, and my joints feel really good. If you're over 30 and you want to use a clinically tested formula to help you feel younger, try Qualia synolytic. To get younger now, visit neurohacker.com slash Dave and try it risk-free for up to 100 days. Use code Dave at checkout to get 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave. Use code Dave. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's cool fact of the day is that, get this, there's no diet that works for everyone, and now there's science to back it up. Uh, Weight gain or loss can depend on how your genes react to a certain diet, at least if you're a lab mouse. So for certain strains of mice uh, that they tested, they found that four different diets worked really well. The problem is that one kind of mouse was impervious to dietary changes. Another's blood sugar shot up on every diet they could find except a typical Japanese diet. And the results of this. Back up recent evidence that your response to foods might change based on your genetic makeup. And this wasn't in the study, but I can tell you right now, your mitochondrial genetic makeup, which is basically the plans for how your energy production systems in the body are made, it's different than the stuff about how your hardware is made, like your eye color, your bones, your height, stuff like that. So the thing that's responsible for taking food and air and light and making energy out of that Uh, That part of you may be more or less responsive to certain foods, and that's okay. The same algorithm works. Do more of what makes you strong. Stop doing the stuff that makes you weak and don't eat toxins is generally a good algorithm for whatever diet you end up working with, and those are the tenets behind the Bulletproof diet. All right. If you've not heard of the Bulletproof performance kits, uh, whether you're new to the show, new to Bulletproof, and just looking to try some of the foundational products for upgrading yourself, or you have specific goals, there are now a dozen specialized kits you can choose from Like around coffee, brain function, detox function, things like that, head on over to bulletproof.com and check out the ability to pick a kit to do what you want it to do. So you get the right supplements, the right food, and right everything else. Today's guest is Dr. Paul Harch. We're gonna talk about something that's all around you today, which is oxygen and how you can pressurize it to treat a whole host of things like making your brain work better, wound treatment. And I wanted to interview Dr. Hartz because he leads the University Medical Center Hyperbaric Medicine Department. He's a clinical professor of medicine in New Orleans, a graduate of John Hopkins University School of Medicine, which is a very well-respected school, and comes from UC Irvine, and has looked very heavily at what happens when our bodies use oxygen. And he's looked at central nervous system, wound healing, autistic kids, brain-injured divers, boxers, uh, people with uh, PTSD, and he's been, percentage presented research seven times to U.S. Congress, been nominated for the NIH Director's Pioneer Award. In, in short, to summarize all that stuff, he's a total oxygen badass. So, Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be on. First up, and I love to ask people when they come on the show, you've had a really a successful career taking something that's been sort of in the corner of medicine, this hyperbaric stuff, and really just digging in and doing this. But why... Why are you so focused in this area? Like what, what gets you up in the morning about oxygen therapy?
2: It, it changed my life. And specifically, the, the powerful results I saw clinically with patients and the way it changed their lives just left me no choice. I couldn't walk away from it. You know, you go through life and you watch pitches come across the plate. And when this finally came, it was so powerful that uh, uh, I had to take a swing. And I did. And it's been very rewarding. So what, what happened with you in oxygen? Well, I was pretty disillusioned in medicine. Uh, I was nine years out of medical school and didn't like what I was doing, didn't like uh, just the whole scope of allopathic medicine. And uh, I got interested in the commercial and sports scuba divers down here in the Gulf of Mexico who were coming in with decompression sickness. And people don't realize it, but it affects the brain. It's not talked about a lot for a lot of reasons, but uh, I became interested in their neurological handicap, if you will, and specifically that our results were nowhere near as good as the Navy's. Navy says 90% cure, first treatment, you're done. We were getting about 40%. And you had to retreat them, and they'd have significant residual. more I looked at it, it was a simple problem. We didn't have a chamber on site like the Navy. We weren't treating immediately. They had to get in from the Gulf of Mexico by boat, by land. And the discovery we made was if we used a different dose of hyperbaric oxygen, lower pressure, lower oxygen, we could treat these guys and women months to years afterward. And there were some very unbelievable cases that changed my life. People uh, in the midst of committing homicides or attempted uh, people jailed with uh, fake psychiatric conditions. Turned out it was brain decompression sickness. And I saw this therapy and what I was doing with it completely turned their lives around. And that's what got me started. That's, uh, that's pretty
1: powerful. So you, you came across this and just dove in. Uh, one of the... Well, literally. <laughs> right. Hyperbaric dive. <laughs> uh, see what I did there? It wasn't on purpose. Yes. Uh, so-, right. so I had another guest on the show talking about traumatic brain injury. Who had a, a real similar story, you know he he came back uh, from a brain injury uh, as a veteran and just uh, you know cut himself at a restaurant, you know beating the crap out of a punk kid who frankly probably deserved it, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but uh, you know just was like wait like this this isn't me like what's going on here and found out it was from a brain injury and went around you know how, how do I fix that? I'm very interested in hyperbaric because uh, my dad has been having blood flow issues in his brain. And uh, I actually gave him my hyperbaric chamber and he's like, I I haven't felt this good in years. Like, this is, this is amazing. And my wife recently uh, hit her head and got a mild concussion. So uh, she's been doing hyperbaric on a regular basis. And I've I've had a chamber for a few years Uh, and people listening to this, like, didn't Michael Jackson sleep in a hyperbaric chamber? Uh, But when people have a brain injury or they have a life like, you know, Michael Jackson where you travel all the time and you know, who knows what all you put in your hair that's full of toxins, but it's probably not good. How frequently should people be using this? Is it just for these brain injury people, just for people with you know, high exposure, high travel, or is this something that you might do at the, the beauty salon kind of thing?
2: Uh, very much so. You might do it for just normal aging and beauty salon. I mean, that's a trigger right there. Walk into a beauty salon and smell the chemicals. <laughs> as, a, you know, as a kid, my mom, we would have to go to the beauty salon with her. I couldn't stand to be in there. The, the toxic environment is just overwhelming. And if you look at some of these hairdressers, they go on to develop neurological syndromes from this constant chemical exposure. So that's not a good example. But yes, for if we look at what normal aging is, which is a DNA-based process, and we now know how hyperbaric oxygen works, which is through gene expression and suppression, it, it makes all the sense in the world that this can be done as an ongoing process, not only to combat our everyday toxins, wounding exposures and so on, but just potentially the process of aging. Everyone listening to this does not want to get
1: old. (laughs) Well, actually, I guess we all want to get old in in terms of the not dying thing, but none of us want the diseases of aging that are associated with getting old. How often should a person be considering doing hyperbaric dive if they want to feel really good when they're old?
2: That question's not answerable yet. Damn. Uh, yeah, but it's more age dependent. So, and it depends on kind of what's in your wallet. I mean, what you've accumulated over the years. So in terms of, uh, ongoing insults, uh, the 25 year old guy who's been in contact sports all his life has had five concussions. This guy should have been doing it a long, a long time ago for the average person. Let's say the healthy young person who's got no cerebral insults, if you will, I don't know if that's possible by the time you're 30, uh, but it's something that you would do maybe once a month. And it depends on how you feel from it. It'll bounce you up to a level where you will feel better and you will sense that and you can maintain that. When you drift off, your body tells you you could accept more. So it's individually determined, just like you were talking about with the mice and diets. It's the whole secret of medicine today, personalized medicine. How do you know if you're getting too much hyperbaric oxygen? Uh, There are a lot of symptoms you can develop, but essentially you go backward. You start reaccumulating or expressing the neurological symptoms that you had before and the complaints. Uh, But if you look at oxygen overdosing and toxicity, the constellation of symptoms is unbelievable. It can be all the way from severe fatigue to euphoria, hyperactivity, uh headaches dizziness visual se- virtually any abnormality manifests as a nervous system symptom a wide range so we have this really interesting therapy that's good
1: for everyone it's really good for people with toxicity uh, chronic illness degenerative diseases or brain injuries but if you do too much of it you can have i'm just going to call them wacky symptoms because it, it it's tough when there isn't a clustering of, of things like that and if you don't do enough of it you can have the same wacky symptoms right <laughs>
2: Well, true, but it's kind of the basis of what you're doing also with Bulletproof. You're trying to get people to tune into their bodies and how they feel, their symptoms. You have to turn yourself inward to do that. And once you're tuned in, you can now fine tune yourself to that plateau and even rise from there. And that's the same thing we're doing with hyperbaric oxygen. Okay. Oxygen therapy. All right. So then
1: we're talking about how am I doing right now, which is the most important skill any of us can have, which is just noticing that and saying, what do I do to cause that? And should I do more or less of that? Uh, that that's been <laughs> the, kind of the core recipe for me on my path to being bulletproof was just, even when I started this uh, in the 90s, I just note that I was feeling really crappy or really good. And I'd make a note in like the corner of my lab notebook that I was using for my for work. Uh, and just like kind of have a, a running thing. All right, what's going on now? What's going on now? What's going on now? Until I'm like, oh, there's a signal in this. And so with hyperbaric treatment, say, so well, I, I try it once a week. I feel great. I try it every night. Maybe I don't feel great. Um, what about sl- what about right. sleeping in a hyperbaric chamber? Is that a good plan?
2: Uh, I don't think so. Okay. Nobody knows for sure, but. One of the things, and you got on it a little bit earlier about uh, too much and overdosing. If we go back to the 1870s, when Priestley discovered oxygen or characterized it, I think he was the second discoverer, what he talked about was the use of this, if done too much, can burn the candle essentially at both ends. And the animal powers that it invests you with can die out too soon. So yeah, there's an overuse. And the key to this is doing it intermittently. For instance, if you have a 911, well, I'm older than you. So let's say I had a 911 incident right now. I plop over and EMS comes out and they try to resuscitate me and they slap me on a face mask of oxygen. They slap it on me and take me to the hospital. What used to be done is people were kept on oxygen for half a day, a day at a time, even longer. You will not get any of the same effects you get with hyperbaric oxygen. And the reason is you have to stimulate and withdraw. So it's the intermittency of it. And when you stay for long periods of time, i.e. sleeping overnight, it does not appear that you get that same result. So there's not good data on that. I know Michael Jackson uh, was uh, publicized that supposedly he slept in it and some of the professional athletes, but I really don't think it's getting them the benefit fit that they can get if they just did it intermittently. Uh,
1: th- there's kind of two forms of hyperbaric uh, treatment. One is just pressure and the other one is pressure plus breathing oxygen, or pressure with oxygenated air. And what happens if you're just playing with pressure on the body? Uh, I, I have a piece of gear at Bulletproof Labs in Santa Monica, one at my house that lets me decrease pressure on the body, uh, to go up to you know, 22,000 feet elevation, and then come down to sea level and sort of, you know, ra- rapidly cycle through different pressure things, which triggers nitric oxide and all. But that's removing and then readding pressure. And what you're talking about is adding right. pressure right? And then removing it. So so what happens when you just do pressure without oxygen?
2: It's almost impossible to do that. The only way you can do it is in very carefully controlled lab experiments. So what you're talking about, it's all on the same continuum, but I'm going to take it to the pressure side for a second. When you pressurize someone, even with air, you are increasing the pressure of oxygen, and that is bioactive. So you can't, do the two separate from each other. Similarly, when you get into your altitude device and expose yourself to low altitude, you are also stressing your body with a low oxygen exposure. Mm -hmm. And it's the combination of those things in either direction that has been shown to activate and suppress genes.
1: So basically, whenever you compress air that contains whatever 17, 20% oxygen, when you compress that, you're getting more oxygen per cubic centimeter, just because there's more air per cubic centimeter. But you can also exactly. you can go into a chamber and then breathe pure oxygen on top of that, which has a, an amplified right. effect. What if you don't breathe pure oxygen? What if you're just under compressed air? Uh, is that enough? Or should we all be breathing oxygen when we go into these these crazy devices so we can live to 180?
2: Well, again, it's all along a continuum. And it's a matter of finding out what dose is best for you and your brain. So yes, there is unequivocal benefit To using compressed air, but not everybody responds to it. And the idea is to try to dose that to your injury, your genetics, uh, your anatomy, everything that's you. You've talked a couple of
1: times around modifying genes. What does manipulating pressure of air (laughs) do for gene modification? Like, that sounds, I I believe it just because we know your genes respond to the environment around you, but like, what evidence do you
2: have and, and how does that work? There's all sorts of evidence, Uh, and it doesn't actually modify the gene. It modifies Mm -hmm. the expression of the gene. So, you know, the the genes, we were taught in medical school, just sat there until you had to reproduce. Uh, (laughs) I mean, once you were developed, it was all done. But in fact, I mean, it is constant. Your chromosomes are being read, the genes transcribed, and then translated to proteins. And it turns out we've got, I think, 19,000 protein-coding genes, What's been shown is a single hyperbaric oxygen exposure to 2.4 atmospheres for our 60 minutes turns on or turns off up to 8,101 of those. So 40% of all of our protein-coated genes can be turned on with a single limited hyperbaric oxygen treatment. And what they've shown is the largest clusters of those turned-on genes are the growth and repair hormone genes, the anti-inflammatory genes, you're going to love that. And the largest clusters of the turned off genes are the pro-inflammatory genes and the ones that code for programmed cell death. So every time you go in a hyperbaric chamber, even with air or with oxygen supplemented, you are stimulating growth of tissue, inhibiting inflammation and turning off cell death to varying degrees, depending on the pressure and the oxygen, because the gene sets are different with different pressures and oxygen. So (laughs) <laughs> there's a mouthful that is a mouthful
1: and it definitely changing gene expression. You can do a diet with temperature. Uh, you mentioned earlier, yes. hypoxia I actually do intermittent hypoxic training and wrote about that in, in headstrong where you know, I breathe air with no oxygen for a little while exercising, which is not a fun experience. Uh, and then I'll breathe pure oxygen. So you can feel the difference when you're playing with these, these gases in, in the blood. Uh, but everyone listening is like, okay, is this some other crazy biohack I have to do? And so I'm gonna ask you like a real you know, man in the street question. You have 150 bucks. You can get a massage or you can do a hyperbaric treatment. Which one do you do?
2: Uh depends on whether you're ill or not. If you're not and you don't have a problem, I'd go get a massage. Okay. Because it you have to answer the question what am I treating? If you're a young 30 year old person, uh, healthy, active, eating a good diet, you know, everything's going well for you. I don't think hyperbaric therapy of any type is necessary. But if you've got something wrong that has caused some wounding to your body or central nervous system, you're going to need a block of 35 to 40 hyperbaric treatments to try to repair that injury. From there, you can then look at intermittency for the average aging person, I'd wait until you get to the point where you're not feeling good or, you're, you know, you're starting to question, you know, I'm not up to my the way I used to be. And that's the time I'd start intervening. But it won't be just one treatment. So you don't look at this as a preventative therapy, more as you need
1: to have something wrong to really get the benefits?
2: No, I do. Okay. But in a preventive way, you're still going to have to do it in kind of a maintenance fashion. Meaning going in and getting a massage or a hyperbaric treatment today and then coming back six months from now and trying another, you're not going to get any sustained benefit from that. It's something that, I mean, it's kind of like your bulletproof diet in a way, but you don't have to do it quite as frequently. You know, I mean, that's a daily thing. Got it. Uh, So I I definitely would say
1: 48% of people under age 40 have early onset mitochondrial dysfunction, uh, according to some of the research in Headstrong. And so if one and two of us have a problem with the parts of our body that use oxygen and food to make energy, is hyperbaric going to be appropriate for that half of people under 40? Uh, yes. Okay, got yes. it. So, so there's a case for it, even if you don't have blatant symptoms, but if you're not kicking ass, you, you're not feeling great, then maybe it's worth a try. And if you feel amazing after the first treatment, that's a sign you maybe want to do more.
2: Exactly. But you've got to answer your question of, why you're not feeling great yeah. as you identify in your book there's a wide range of insults that are assaulting your body every single day from the air you breathe what we ingest you know the water we drink the electronics uh, everything and some people are more sensitive to that just like they are to medications the mouse diets etc and so if you're not feeling well there's a cause and if it has involved wounding in some way which the result of is the inflammatory reaction, then most definitely this therapy is for you. Got it.
1: And this is a therapy that very few people have tried. And most people have heard of hyperbaric, but they don't really have a, a clue for it. And you mentioned this magic number of 35 to 40. Uh, when uh, Daniel Amen, you know, looked at my my brain scan, and was like, uh, you should get 40 of these things. Uh, and certainly, so that's what I, I told my dad, just based on the abundance of evidence of something's going on. And recently, uh, a friend of mine who uh, runs uh, a large uh, uh, private jet company uh, reached out and was like, I I think I have Lyme disease. Something's not right. And got his his lab data back. And he actually had lots of shockingly exposure (laughs) to chemicals uh, and some other stuff going on, including a toxic mold exposure. And so same thing. I'm like, do 40 hyperbaric treatments. And he just called me this week after eight of them. It's like, Dave, I got my life back. Like my brain is working again. Like like I'm over the hump. I've been struggling for almost a year and all of a sudden I I feel better. So to know that that's available is cool. I got to ask you though, and you may have an answer to this. When the average person in the average city says, I want a hyperbaric treatment, do you know how much it costs? Assuming you're not at a hospital when you do it.
2: In the private sector, freestanding facilities, it's anywhere from 150 to... Three hundred fifty dollars. Generally, it's around the two hundred fifty range, but it somewhat depends on the type of chambers people have. So, usually, if you've got the hard shell chambers that weigh, you know, a thousand pounds or so, cost one hundred to one hundred fifty thousand dollars. You're going to pay a little bit more. If you've got, we call them the, you know, the portable Ziploc baggies, but the the portable chambers, soft sided, uh, they're twenty thousand dollars brand new or so, and they usually charge much less. And those are for sort of
1: clinical grade ones. Uh, I did the math when I first looked at this, and you can buy somewhat sketchy <laughs> uh, home units for, uh, that go up to about 1.3 to 1.5 atmospheres uh, for about five thousand uh, dollars, coming from China. And I, whether they have BPA right. in them, I have no idea. Uh, and you get up to the the sort of prosumer level, you can spend eight to fifteen thousand dollars. And when you look at that, okay, I need 40 sessions, they're gonna cost me 200, like, like the break evens about there. Right. So what I often recommend to people who, who have it uh, within their means is buy a 10,000 or $15,000 chamber, use it until you're done and then sell it on the used market because they don't depreciate that much so you can actually save money. But more importantly, you can go in there at, you know, after work or before you go to bed and the accessibility to do 40 treatments doesn't re- require that you drive to a facility 40 times. Uh, Is that good good advice or are people going to like cook themselves at home?
2: (laughs) No, no, they won't. That is good advice. There's a little more nuance to it, but yes. And the other thing about it is that if you buy it on the used market, you don't need a doctor prescription for it. You get a new one, you need a doctor prescription. It's an FDA doctor prescription device. But you touched on something else there that I also wanted to mention, which is uh, where this could be used. For anybody is in performance recovery. Yes. You know, if you are out and doing a very vigorous exercise, you are going to have some degree of anaerobic metabolism and you will build up oxygen debt. And this, especially the oxygen component of it, can literally erase that oxygen debt, but you need more of the oxygen part of it. So just compressed air isn't going to quite do that. It can help, but it's only going to give you about a 28, 30% increase.
1: So then if someone's going to do a really heavy workout or they just finished an Ironman or a triathlon or even just a heavy weekend workout, if you're going to wake up the next morning with sore muscles, is it just a good idea to just hop on in if you've got one in your living room?
2: I ideally you'd like to go in right after your workout because that's when your oxygen debt is maximal and you can treat the breakdown metabolic products before they're in the tissue and cause their Reaction, if you can say the achiness and soreness of the next morning. But even if you did it the next morning, it's still going to help.
1: Are you still going to build muscle and put on the mass or get the the aerobic cardiac adaptation? If as soon as you exercise, you hit it with a ton of oxygen,
2: it's not a ton. But I mean, we're not we're not <laughs> yeah. going to the levels that we're usually doing in the hospitals. It's actually an intermediate level. Uh, the answer to that is not completely known. I can only tell you that from people who are using for performance recovery, they are not seeing a decrement in performance. So in fact, this is allowing them to function at a higher level and in a sustained way. Uh, There are
1: a lot of of pro athletes who listen to Bulletproof Radio. I've heard from a whole bunch of NFL teams uh, who uh, have gone Bulletproof and reached out. And so they could potentially use this. There's a lot of other people from a variety of sports. They could use this after sports, But especially in in something like football, where you hit your head a lot, should you be in hyperbaric before you go out on the field or just after?
2: If you go and use it before you go out on the field, it can actually have an exhausting effect on you. In other words, it's going to, it potentially can energy deplete you a little bit. And the best example of this, uh, if you go to Sports Illustrated in 95, I think the summer issue, August, they had the story of the Vancouver Canucks, and they started using hyperbaric oxygen that season for injuries. They ended up with the least lost ice time of any NHL team that year for injuries. They were back on the ice playing, performing. Next year, they thought, wow, this will be good for performance. They started using it that way with workouts, uh, after workouts, but it was indiscriminate, and they didn't have the same effect. If you read my book, I, I talk about Bill Romanowski. Bill Romanowski in 2001 was exhausted, and he's allowed me to talk about this. He's been on the radio about it multiple times. But he called up and, you know, he was using many different things for mm-hmm. performance enhancement. But, but he was on to a lot of the metabolic stuff in the workout and the diet yeah. long before anybody was. The NDA yeah, he had some other things. But the point was, halfway through that season in Denver, he, he was so exhausted, he didn't think he could finish. And he called up and he said, I'm using the hyperbaric oxygen. And What's wrong here? He was using it before his workouts and thinking that this is going to enhance performance. And what it did, it just exhausted him. So I turned it around and I said, you need to do this after your injury, which is right after that Sunday game or after injuries in practice. Well, he went on to play the rest of that season, played, I think, another one there, got traded to San Francisco and uh, then to Oakland. And he finally had that tearful retirement. The reason was he couldn't get hyperbaric oxygen in the Bay Area once he got transferred and the concussions caught up to him and that was it. So the point was, didn't work for performance enhancement in the way that you were thinking about it. It's for recovery after performance and injuries. I
1: could hug you for saying that. Like the the number one performance enhancer is recovery. <laughs> it, you know, <laughs> I, I I see this.
2: That's the next Skype. The next Skype thing <laughs> the is the Skype hug, hug you're right? doing. We'll,
1: we'll send a yeah. little emoticon. But uh, this is something I, I've worked with a, a good number of of CEOs or hedge fund manager types. And they're like, you know, I'm on top of the world. I control a billion dollars and, you know, I have this massive company and I'm going to do the Kona you know, Ironman, you know, naked uh, backwards. And, you know, I, I'm going to fly all over the world in my jet. And, and like, you know, what's going to happen is you're going to hate your life because you're overtraining given all the other things in your life. And then like, let me see, how's your sleep? Oh, I don't really sleep anymore. How's your sex life? What's sex life? Right. You're like, well, <laughs> you have symptoms of overtraining. <laughs> so like recovering better might matter. Uh, which is is awesome that you just said that, given your medical background and all. So thank you. My pleasure. The other thing that you bring up here that's missing from our conversation around biohacking in general is that what to do when really matters. And to help solve that problem at Bulletproof Labs there in Santa Monica, we have a, a whole bunch of these technologies that enhance recovery or enhance performance. And we've developed protocols based on our understanding of mechanisms of action and say, all right, what do we think we should do when, but we're taking the data and then feeding it through machine learning algorithms. So we'll get to the point where we can measure where you are, look at where you want to go, and then basically recommend do this and do this, but don't do that. And if you want some other result, do this other thing. And I think this is like the very cutting edge of biohacking. We're starting to think uh, based on that data and just based on the Nobel Prize this year, there's a circadian rhythm to almost everything. Like uh, yesterday, uh, I just saw a study, there's a circadian rhythm in red blood cells that's driven by potassium, not by mitochondrial genetics. Like no one ever noticed that. And there's one for magnesium. Right. So is there a circadian rhythm in the body for oxygen? Like should we do hyperbaric in the morning? Should we do it at
2: night? Like what works best? Don't know. It's a great question. But yes, our entire body sleep cycle, everything is rhythmic and happens in spurts and cycles and so on. There may be a better time to do this, uh, but it hasn't been explored. You got to realize this therapy started in 1662. What I'm telling you about oxygen therapy or the effects of pressure and oxygen on gene expression with hyperbarics has just been known now for eight years, (laughs) nine. I'm, I'm serious. We are in the infancy. And what I didn't tell you is what they've shown is that the effects of pressure more have the effects of suppression of gene expression, where the oxygen expresses the genes. But as you go higher, the overall numbers of genes decrease. And what they've shown is there are different pressures, different oxygen levels, and you're activating different gene sets. We are just in the infancy Of finding out how to modulate this, let alone time it with respect to circadian rhythms. It's now being, you know, mainly for injury, preconditioning, and so on.
1: We're real early. How did they do this in 1662?
2: It was just a pressurized chamber with pressurized air, a little bell. It was an enclosed apparatus called a domicilium, and they pressurized it with a little bellows device. And he could also depressurize it by just changing the valving. So it was a hypobaric and hyperbaric chamber.
1: And, and you fast forward like 300 and something years, and I've basically got a similar setup downstairs, but instead of having a, a servant pump the bellows, I have a turbine. Exactly. Yeah, the more things change, the more they stay the same. I, I thought it was cool right. for a while till this interview, but now I, I'm just, I'm, I'm antique. Uh, all right, just a random question. Do you have an antique version, one of those in your office?
2: Uh, no, ah, I don't.
1: But you would if you could, right?
2: <laughs> That's exactly right. Uh, there
1: probably aren't any surviving ones would be my guess. No, one thing I didn't mention, and I should have mentioned in in your introduction, is that your book is called "The Oxygen Revolution." It's uh, it, it's relatively technical, but you go through hyperbaric uh, oxygen as epigenetic gene therapy and what you think it's going to do for our nervous systems and for medicine. So for for biohackers, medical professionals, and just interested people who who don't mind getting a little technical. Uh, it's a really powerful look at what really is happening inside your body. So I, I enjoyed your book and you mentioned it. I just didn't mention the title at the intro. So uh, The Oxygen Revolution well, is, where, uh, is where you can go to learn more about, about your book. Uh, it's fascinating that given the medical background and a genetic twist, uh, you're looking at this stuff. How does genetic expression change in something like uh, traumatic brain injury or, or PTSD? Uh, have you looked at that and what the changes of those genes would be like with oxygen?
2: I haven't, but we're right at the initiation point for that. I mean, there is uh, a lot of work on gene expression after traumatic brain injury. What I've looked at is from the standpoint of a wounding process. So, as you probably know, our brain is composed primarily of gray matter and white matter, gray matter where the neurons are the densest, and the white matter is all the cable connecting track. Almost all of the injury, at least in mild traumatic brain injury, is to the connecting tracks, the cable, which is, as you well know, 63% fat or so (laughs) myelin uh, and, and very fragile. They're long tracks, just like a fiber optic glass table. And when the brain is shaken, the torque effects break those and damage them. And those are the microscopic wounds of traumatic brain injury, such that what you end up with is decreased bandwidth. And those are the targets, those little wounds of hyperbaric oxygen. So it turns out, and we we haven't published the study yet, we've got the data, I'll, I shouldn't pre-announce it, but <laughs> we, did <a> stu- <laughs> we did a study on a major college football team, and what we have found is that various genetic markers are given off with concussion, that are markers of acute concussion, and that recede as the patient recovers from it. And our next step is going to be to look at hyperbaric oxygen effects on that. Because I've already treated the patients, we've done this for 30 years, acute concussion, subacute, chronic, severe, doesn't matter, all traumatic brain injuries, severities and phases. This is the most effective therapy for it. And it's dramatic. Assuming that these lab tests become available and
1: affordable, then people who, and by the way, 90% of us, I would say as adults probably have traumatic brain injury. At at 40 years of Zen, it's a neurofeedback facility that I started uh, for more executive, cognitive increasing stuff. Ah, uh, we just see this over and over. You can see it in a twenty four channel EEG pattern. And these are highly functioning adults who are you know running companies or actors or whatever. but it, it's it's not that they're broken. It's just that there's this capacity that their brain routed around, and you can train the brain to do that. But if it if you got injured ten years ago, is are these markers still going to be somewhat elevated? or it, is it decline?
2: Potentially, wow. potentially. likely different markers. They're acute phase. Their, the subacute phase and their chronic markers. So what's happening is that at, just like the inflammatory reaction, at all phases of the inflammatory reaction, there is different gene expression remodeling, and it can go on for years. So you can measure different things all the way along, but the original injury, you cannot completely get rid of. And this was shown in 1980 by a neuropsychologist who took college students, one group who had had Uh, mild traumatic brain injury two to three years before, been knocked out unconscious, definition, mild TBI, Awakened, and two to three years later, completely asymptomatic, top of their game. They matched them to a control group, never had a concussion, tested them with cognitive testing. The two were identical. Took them in an altitude chamber to 11,800 feet, retested them. The ones with the previous concussion showed a 10 to 15% reduction in performance. What it told you is they had lost reserve capacity. The injury was partially still there. They'd accommodated it, but you could bring it out during stress. So just take that to where it needs to go. Sleep deprivation, uh, overuse, exhaustion, uh, chemical effects, uh, drug effects, low altitude, you name it.
1: So this is a core resilience play, uh, which, is, which is really yes. cool. Wow, okay, that's, uh, that's really powerful. Does this mean that if someone has a really hard time going to altitude, that it's a possible indicator of either a brain injury or a mitochondrial disorder?
2: Unquestionably, what what you're doing is a stress test on them, like we do with cardiac stress test. Altitude is a hypoxia and low pressure stress test for the body and brain. Many many of these brain injured people. In fact, I I'm sorry, I'm no, getting keep carried going. away, but. Yeah. <laughs> All right. If you go back to the advent uh, or initiation of hyperbaric therapy in the United States, it was in 1918, Spanish flu epidemic. Dr. Orville Cunningham from University of Kansas City Medical School was in Colorado over the Great Gorge and was just thinking down and thinking how at altitude, people with neurological syndromes and flu and so on did much worse. What would happen, he thought, if we increase the pressure? That is what started the application in the Spanish flu epidemic, and it was just pressurized air. So the whole point is that, you know, with low altitude and hypoxia, neurological disease does not do well. And many of my patients can tell you that. Sea level, they go to altitude in Denver, Colorado. They come back and they say, wow, that wasn't a very good trip.
1: I went through this as I was recovering from my own chemical-induced brain damage. Uh, This was toxic mold chemicals and a bunch of other stuff. I used to not handle altitude that well, but I like altitude and mountaineering. So I, I did oh yeah did some climbing in the Andes. It was really hard, and just you feel like death. And when I was in the Himalayas uh, in 2004, I was somewhat recovered, but I was still feeling wrecked at 18,000 feet. And that was when I had my first yak butter tea. That was the the genesis uh, for the bulletproof coffee idea. And Five minutes after I drank it, I'm like, "What just happened? Like, I I feel great. I feel like myself again." And I understand now there's some mitochondrial stuff around what's going on in the water, and and you know, there's there's all sorts of potential mechanisms. Uh, but since then, I've I've looked at okay, what brings me back? I'm I'm very resilient at altitude because I train for that stuff now. But what brings other people back? Uh, ketosis, and uh, I've had a bunch of people tell me they take uh, Keto Prime. Uh, which is a uh, the last step right. of, of making ATP before you recycle food. They do a relatively high dose of that at altitude, and like within a few minutes, like oh, I feel like myself again. Uh, so when I'm on airplanes, I do that, or if if I'm feeling altitude and I'm you know at, at a, a high city exercising or something, I notice I can enhance it temporarily. Is there a reason you might consider taking mitochondrial enhancers before you hop into hyperbaric oxygen, or should you use those in place of it?
2: Possibly, but I don't know that anybody's done it, and it just adds another variable. Usually when people come to see me, I try to do one variable, uh, which is hyperbaric oxygen. We keep everything else the same until we find out how this affects them. And if you did something like that, well, if you charged up the mitochondria and we know that part of the activity of this is at the mitochondrial level. In fact, you just pulled, I just turned to write a little note to myself, as you were mentioning the mitochondria and your chemical experience. In fact, hyperbaric oxygen, there's studies showing that it is active at the mitochondrial DNA level uh-huh. as well. And if you know, the oxygen level in the mitochondria is zero to one millimeters of mercury. Now you can imagine what even a little more can do. So yes, I'm supposed by adding some octane fuel enhancer like you're talking about with keto prime or something else beforehand may really juice it up and actually change the dose of hyperbaric oxygen that you would need. Maybe you'd need a lesser dose. Oh, how cool! I don't know that I have the good data to know whether
1: I got the right dose yet, but all right, next time I hop in the chamber, (laughs) I'm I'm going to take a full stack and see if I if if I grow new arms or some sort of uh you know red kryptonite (laughs) thing that would be fun. All right, all all these all these rooms, uh, all this room for experimentation. I'm frustrated because it takes a long time to do clinical studies, but I'm hopeful that what we can do with machine learning and essentially enough people report enough experiences, we can probably get a signal from the noise without having to uh, having to go down all these clinical pathways, which then generates enough signal to justify a clinical study where we spend you know, tens of thousands of dollars or hundreds of thousands of dollars to figure out, you know, should you eat your spinach before you do hyperbaric? Because it might matter, but we just don't know.
2: <laughs> well, unquestionably, in fact, what we're doing right now and all of the social media and so on, if you look, 1998, I wrote a book chapter, and the very last part of it was that this all needed to be on the internet and that this would facilitate worldwide dissemination of information that has previously (laughs) been locked up and cloistered in doctor libraries and medical libraries. And now look what's happening. Maybe you've seen with that drowned child I treated last summer, uh, it is all over social media, the families that are putting the information together on what works, what doesn't work, the problems, these children, it just amplifies the dissemination of it to where now you can pool this information and get signal above noise much easier
1: if someone had a non-specified brain injury or like something happened you know i you know i had a surgical procedure or i I got in a car accident or like in other words i don't really know what's going on but something i got a virus something happened i don't really know the full diagnosis is it a good idea to say you know maybe you should hop into hyperbaric chamber and see if you feel better uh, just w- without knowing, which is the kind of stuff that goes out on social media. Like, hey, try this if you're feeling like crap and nothing seems to work. Or would you maybe reserve that as there's more risk than reward for that?
2: Uh, no, I, I, depending on dose and pressure and oxygen and so on, that isn't an unreasonable approach. In fact, it is reasonable. Now, that is the basis upon which hyperbaric oxygen was criticized for literally centuries now. People didn't understand how it worked. And as people started using it for more and more things, and people started say, wow, this, this helped me and benefited. The lack of explanation by the scientific community was the downfall. But in fact, if you look at this, we answered your question for a full 10 years. From 1989 to 1999, we did a 10-year study where we looked at any brain-based neurological condition, regardless of diagnosis. And many of them, uh, they were uncertain of the diagnosis. And we indexed it to the functional brain imaging. All we wanted to know was, is this hyperbaric therapy acting like a generic drug for repair of brain wounding? And that's what we tested. And in fact, we didn't know for certain what many of those diseases were or how they manifest. And lo and behold, it worked for quite a few of them. So your approach and your idea is not unreasonable.
1: Wow. All right. That, that blows my mind. Uh, it's certainly something that I would consider, uh, along with a bunch of the other biohacks, like, well, we don't really know what's going on, but it's probably foundational with energy metabolism. Uh, uh, hyperbaric oxygen is one of the many ways of, of attacking that system. Uh, what about other things you can do while you're in there? Um, I've definitely used like light sound goggles and I've actually rigged up a system that let me do red light therapy, uh, with a variety of different devices and wavelengths infrared as well, uh, inside hyperbaric. Do you think that there might be a basis for using uh, some of these other simulators
2: of mitochondria while you're under pressure? Most definitely. It's just nobody's really tested it. And it's hard to get good information and good data on it. The, the only thing you've got to be careful of, we've got to really address this, is the whole safety issue. If you're using oxygen from a concentrator by mask or nasal cannula, there's usually not much leak. Fire hazard with oxygen, especially under pressure, starts accelerating at 23.5% and above. So, room air is 21%. And so, as you start getting up in oxygen levels, none of those portable chambers have been tested for an enriched oxygen environment. So, if you start getting electronics in them and you've got a significantly elevated level, which is hard to do, but sometimes people rig them up in a way that they do that you're getting into a little more risk. Any static electricity spark can be a problem and so on. So in general, using it the way that you are, probably not. There's not much of a problem. And combination therapy ultimately is the way to go. I describe this as a foundation biologic therapy upon which we add these other things to enrich it.
1: So I guess my strategy of smoking in the hyperbaric chamber to reduce the risk is not a good strategy. (laughs) (laughs)
2: uh <laughs> generally not darn
1: uh, if, from what i've seen on the the home chambers that go to 1.3 atmospheres or 1.4 atmospheres even with the ten liter per minute oxygen that you might breathe, as long as you're not putting a f- an ignition source right next to the oxygen, uh, the fire risk is is quite low, and, and it's safe to have an iPad or uh, some other low voltage electronic device, and you're unlikely to set it off. But when I have done the the hard chamber that's you know, two atmospheres, breathing a lot of oxygen, you go in there wearing static free robes, and there's no electronics inside because you know there are facilities that have literally blown up uh, because.
2: True. Uh, Usually in the hard shell chambers, the vast majority of them are compressed on oxygen. And you have to be extremely careful. Uh, In fact, there have only been two chamber fires in the history of United States hyperbaric medicine. And one of them uh, is just what you described jokingly. We had a commercial diver down here in Louisiana who was doing his surface decompression on oxygen in the chamber and smoking. (laughs) And okay, okay, well, he had the mask on doing the pure oxygen free flow but he was smoking the cigarette and the concentration built up. I think what happened was it burned the cigarette so fast, got onto the sheets pretty soon. They had a fire and that was it. So no. (laughs) (laughs) One of my
1: favorite YouTube videos that they asked a bunch of engineering college students, uh, they had a contest, see who could light the barbecue the fastest. So that the chemistry (laughs) students come out with liquid oxygen and they light, you know, a a little tinder source and pour the oxygen on the grill. And within about 10 seconds, the entire barbecue itself is, is a pile of slag. Like, okay, (laughs) (laughs) when you, when you apply that high oxygen, high fire, you might not like what happens. So thank you for warning people who who might be doing this just to be aware of that. Right. Uh, Next question for you, multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's, ALS, Alzheimer's. Talk with me about what hyperbaric does for people with those conditions.
2: Uh, Wide range of variability. As I talk about in my book, I've treated a good number of Parkinson's patients and The only published experience with success is a kind of unusual protocol that were used by the Italians, uh, where they gave oxygen for just 10 minutes at a time, then a two-minute air break where they breathed air, uh, and it was oxygen, air, oxygen, air, like this. And they claimed uh, results in certain subsets of patients, like vascular causes, stroke causes of Parkinson's versus other groups. So Parkinson's, is, it still hasn't been sorted out. ALS, I can tell you, my experience has been very poor if done just by itself. You have to combine it with other therapies. And one of my patients actually got hyperbarics through some colleagues first and then contacted me. Uh, his name is Kim Cherry, and people can go to his website and look at it. This guy is an amazing story, but what he's combined is hyperbaric oxygen ozone therapy, Oh yeah, diet and a variety of other things. And he is now, I want to say eight years out from diagnosis, playing golf two to three times a week. Uh, he is beating the odds and people have tried to call him a fake and all this other stuff. I know the guy. I have met him. I examined him. I've looked at all the data. I helped him. This guy is for real. And it's combination therapy. That's ALS. For the for the other two diagnoses uh, you mentioned, uh, Alzheimer's um, in the Townsend letter in April, it's published in March. Will be the first Alzheimer's case treated in the U.S. It's one I treated in 2001. Uh, It showed to Congress. I've treated nine Alzheimer's cases now, and I've had good results with seven of them. So yes, very very encouraging. And I think you may have seen this: the Israelis announced a mouse model of Alzheimer's uh, just this last week. And they showed a 40% reduction in tau protein in the brain and a significant reduction in inflammatory markers in these mice with an improvement in their behavior. And the last one, MS, I can just tell you, highly controversial, but it works. And you just have to get the right dose. My wife is the best example. You haven't met her. If she was here today, you would never know she's had MS for 17 years. Wow. She walks, talks, dances, skis. She is the heart and soul of my office. She's a nurse. And she came onto this in an unusual way, working as a hyperbaric inside nurse and attendant in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And didn't know, she started feeling fatigued, but going in the chamber, she'd breathe oxygen for the last half of the patient treatments as she was accompanying them. And when she came to New Orleans and then Hurricane Katrina hit, stopped getting hyperbaric treatment until later fell down, had a concussion. We saw the MS lesions on MRI and I've been treating her for another 10 years now and she's doing great. Uh, wow.
1: That's just, so, that's adding resilience to the system.
2: Yes. Do you give her ozone treatments too? She's had some, but, uh, I don't regularly do it. Got it. I- she, well, I take it back. She does, she does some, uh, intermittently. Yes, she combines it. I'm, I'm really happy
1: that, that you mentioned that. Ozone therapy is really controversial in the U.S. anyway, yes. in Russia and Cuba and places like, like well, it works better than drugs and it's cheaper and we didn't have the drugs anyway. So, yeah, we use it. I, I'll just state categorically, I wouldn't be sitting here today the way I am if I hadn't had access to ozone therapy. I, I recovered from a lot of the, the brain toxins uh, using uh, self-administered yes. ozone. And for people with toxic mold... Uh, Lyme disease, uh, chronic chemical exposure, or just weird infections that won't go away. It's like a complete game changer. Different mechanism of action, but another oxygen therapy. Uh, Correct. And I don't know how to stack it with hyperbaric. Any thoughts? I know that we don't have data, but understanding mechanisms of action the way you do. Would you do ozone therapy far away from hyperbaric? Would you do it first and go in? Would you do it after?
2: You'd literally have to try it. uh, And the way to do it is do one or the other get the treatment benefit, and then let yourself drift for a little while and find out how you do. When you start getting a recrudescence of symptoms, add the other therapy and see what its effect is. And then later you can look at combining them. So you'll be able to kind of gauge how much of it you need, how much of a symptom response. And I do this just exactly as you have done it. I have patients keep diaries. They don't have to be long, detailed ones, but I have them make symptom problem lists. They can even make a little graph with it, you know, on a one to 10 scale. These analog scales have been shown to be extremely reliable. As you know, it's the basis for pain therapy. Yeah. You know, That's another subject. But the, the whole point is they can follow their symptoms and try to fine tune themselves.
1: Very, very cool. So you're you're open minded to these things, and and it oh yes, it's kind of rare when I, I've worked with with a lot of medical professionals, especially outside the realm of functional medicine, uh, where like the sort of patient self reporting and and like, we'll try it and see if it works. It, it's a different mindset, uh, whereas it's the do no harm part of the Hippocratic oath. It, it seems broken because you should be willing to do a little harm if you get a huge benefit and the patients in control you seem like you've you've adopted that in the way you think about it how did you do that like like what's different about you than than many other colleagues who simply wouldn't be that experimental
2: i was very open minded when i went to medical school and i i decided I, I knew nothing i wanted to learn anything and everything and in our very first quarter we had a course called issues in healthcare and it was taught by the assistant dean of uh, public health or the dean of public health, uh, school of public health. And he brought in uh, attorneys to talk about the first malpractice case that just got settled. They brought in someone with a sex change operation. They brought in all sorts of people that brought up issues in healthcare. And one day we had this One older doctor had gone to Hopkins undergraduate, Hopkins Medical School, trained there, was faculty. Now he was semi-retired. And the title of his talk was The Importance of a History and Physical Exam. One third of my class didn't even show up. And by the time this guy was 15 minutes into it, one third of the rest had gotten up and walked out right in front of him. It was the rudest thing I'd seen in four years. But his message was the most powerful of anything I learned at that medical school, which was all science. And You know, hard hard science. And And it was that if you listen to patients, they will tell you what's wrong with them. (laughs) And by the time you're done taking a history from them, if you don't have a very short list of diagnoses to choose from, you failed. You need to go back and start over again. And when you combine it with the physical exam, you ought to have a good idea what's wrong with people. And that stayed with me and was reinforced time and time again to the point where I realized, look, I can't practice medicine unless I'm willing to listen to people. And, and to go one step further, what you're talking about is listening to people and looking at them is actually the foundation of allopathic medicine that we don't want to admit or is not admitted. It's all about writing prescriptions, drawing te- lab values and looking at MRIs. And so on. no, it's not. Those are confirmatory. I mean, they can help, in some ways, looking at esoteric stuff that you can't put your finger on. But the reality is, how do I determine if you're sick? When you come into my office and I don't have that MRI and I don't have all that blood work, it's coming back in a week or however long. I look at you. I look at your face and your eyes and your body language. Are you sick or not? And what, what you're telling me, that is the whole basis of clinical medicine, the Hippocratic Oath, and so on. And I've just taken it to another realm here by being able to see this in people's facial expression. And that's the way I dose them.
1: Well, that it's profound. And, and that's a message that I hope all of the medical professionals and soon to be medical professionals uh, listening, I really take to heart. And I, I see it a lot in functional medicine, the, the kind of doctors who are willing to sit down with you for an hour or two in a first meeting to really get an understanding. And I'll I'll never forget one of the people, uh, one of the doctors I interviewed in Moldy, the documentary about water-damaged buildings and toxic mold. Uh, she was a physician, and she she basically said, "Look, in medical school they teach you if someone has more than three or four symptoms, they're hypochondriac and they're probably lying to you." I'm paraphrasing, and you know you shouldn't believe them. You should pretty much give them antidepressants, like that they're, they're a nutter. And and I I just remember this doctor when I was fat and nothing worked, and he looked at me and said, "Maybe you should try and lose weight." And I'm like, no kidding! Like I've worked out eighteen months, six days a week, an hour and a half a day. Like the weight's not coming off. I don't eat anything, you know. And and you could just see it. He's like, liar! <laughs> like like clearly that this right. guy's like eating Snickers bars as soon as he leaves the office. And and that was really frustrating. And that was a three minute conversation, uh, where you know that that L word you use, listen. Uh, so that you learned this because you had a a monumental lecture from someone who made a huge difference in in your trajectory from just one one good piece of advice that stuck wow that 's cool
2: it 's the single most important thing I got out of medical school, and you know what you 're talking about there unfortunately has been the plague of so many women yeah. women, women are so sensitive because of the hormonal cycle they go through, they're very tuned into their inner feelings. And they also lodge more complaints as a result. They, when things are out of whack, guys, you know, it's like a diesel, they put it in forward and they go, you know, and uh, it's not too nuanced for a lot of men, but women are are just finer sensitivity. And those complaints often have been looked at and termed as hysterical and women get very easily written off. Uh, and it's been a problem.
1: It's, but you gotta listen to people. It's been a problem. And it, it's also a gift. Uh, women are better biohackers than guys. Cause they notice stuff before we do on average, like, like right. there are guys who are more sensitive and women who aren't sensitive. But if you, you know, close your eyes and, and, you know, look at a specific, uh, you know, specific gender, like, like generally speaking, like, yeah, I felt a difference cause there's always a difference versus for guys. There's a difference, but it's more subtle. And we often have just ignore it. Cause you know, we wanted to eat, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, this has been a, a real fascinating conversation, and I'm I'm eager to hear your answer uh, to our final question, uh, which is based on your whole path, and not just your medical expertise, but just what what made you uh, focus, what what made you want to change the game in your industry, and you know, be nominated for these these awards and write these books, and just you know, make the difference you've made. Based on that path, if someone came to you tomorrow and said, look. I also want to perform better as a human being. Like I want to, I want to change the game. Uh, what are the most important pieces of advice you'd offer someone like that?
2: Well, there there are three of them, and the first one is the secret to life. I believe is balance. It's hard work. It's hard play. It's loving relationships. It's exercise, diet. It's a spiritual life. It's a balance between all of these things, and the people who can achieve balance, like the Greeks did in what they preach, are the ones who do the best. It's kind of like the uh, temple at Delphi and the Oracle, uh, everything in moderation. The second thing is, go natural. Everything we need to make us healthy, happy, and so on is right here on Earth man made substances uh, the whole hubris of the idea that we 're going to make something that interacts with the unbelievable complexity of our body and have no side effects and and give us cure of a complicated disease is just fantasy, so go natural, which leads to the third thing, which is use the healing power of the natural power of oxygen and pressure to correct disease processes in our body, and if you can, we can cure disease, improve our quality of life, and live longer at our maximum potential.
1: Beautiful. Uh, What a a profound answer. I find that having done almost 450 episodes of Bulletproof Radio now, I, I never know what someone's going to say uh, and it, it's intriguing because you, you've led a, a very powerful path in, in your life where you, I'm just to say, went off the reservation and that you're not doing what most doctors do. And by virtue of that, you've had a bigger impact uh, because you're, you're bringing light to something that really matters, has broad applicability, uh, but that hasn't been properly explored. So there, there's some, some mindset that does that. So thank, thanks for sharing uh, what, what worked for you there. My pleasure. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Paul Harch's work, you should read his book called The Oxygen Revolution. And, Paul, is there another place, a URL or something that you'd like to send people to who want to learn more about uh, your body of work? Uh,
2: HBOT.com and Oxygenetherapy.com. All right. Are probably the best sites. O
1: X Y G E N E therapy.com. All right. Got it.
2: And HBOT.com.
1: HBOT.com. Awesome. We'll put all those in the show notes. If you come to the Bulletproof blog, you'll be able to get a transcript of all of this if we went through it too fast for you. Or if you were like me listening to something like this on two or three X, the normal speed. So we sound like chipmunks. That's okay too. We've got your back. If you liked today's episode, you know what to do. Head on over to Amazon. And if you want to know more about hyperbaric oxygen, so you can have more resilience or maybe treat one of these many things we just talked about, read Paul's book, uh, The Oxygen Revolution. It's worth your time. And this is something that belongs in our sphere of biohacking and isn't there yet today. And if you like his book, go to Amazon and take about 10 seconds and leave a review. And when you do that, that's a huge way for you to show gratitude, which raises your oxytocin levels and makes you a better person. And also as an author, I can tell you that based on his life's work, Paul's going to care that you did that. And likewise if you take a a minute to leave a, a recommendation for one of the bulletproof books like headstrong same thing here i read those reviews i see them and it actually matters so thank you for taking a second to go do that and i look forward to seeing you on the next episode
0: a human upgrade formerly bulletproof radio was created and is hosted by dave asprey